0: Hello, and welcome to Displaced. I'm Grant Gordon.
1: And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy, and we're your co-hosts on the show.
0: Displaced is a podcast between the International Rescue Committee, where Ravi and I work, and Vox Media. It's the podcast where we really try to break down and understand the current global refugee crisis and humanitarian crises more broadly. Today on the show, we have got David Halpern, who today is the UK government's national advisor for what works, which is an amazing job title. But more importantly, David Halpern is also the chief executive of the Behavioral Insights team, a team that began inside the cabinet office inside the UK government before spinning out into what is now popularly known as the Nudge Unit. The Nudge Unit has embraced behavioral economics and behavioral sciences as a way of shaping policy to improve the lives of citizens in countries everywhere. David is a psychologist by background and has written widely on trust and social capital and has a book called Inside the Nudge Unit. Before entering government, David held tenure at Cambridge and posted Oxford and Harvard.
1: Behavioral science has really come to the fore in policymaking circles in recent years. The UK, as Grant said, and the US set up nudge units. Richard Thaler, the author of Nudge, won the Nobel Prize for Economics last year. And the World Bank's World Development Report in 2015 was titled Mind, Society and Behavior and was all about applying behavioral science to development. It's a shift that's particularly important and perhaps counterintuitive for humanitarians. Because for many years, humanitarians focused on delivering stuff to people, food, water, clean blankets, vaccines. But increasingly, we're judging our success not based on delivering stuff or activities, but on outcomes. Whether people are getting healthier, more literate, more financially independent. And that usually requires behaviour change. It requires parents to breastfeed their children, wash their hands, take their children to a clinic for vaccinations and treatment. It requires teachers to teach more effectively, to show up. It requires behaviour change right across the system. And that's something we've not really focused on how to do. And that's why I think that the Behavioural Insights team and what they do is so valuable because it can potentially deliver very low cost but highly effective changes. We would love to hear from you. Get in touch with us on Twitter or email us at at
0: displacedatrescue.org or check out our show notes. Hang on,
1: Grant. You've really learned nothing from this interview, have you? What does behavioral science say about how to get people to do anything? It's not to plead with them and instruct. It's to say that loads of people love us already. It's very Trumpian, actually, sadly. Oh, you want you want us to change the social frame so you should get in touch with us because hundreds
0: of thousands of people listen to this podcast. Your friends love it. Your parents love it. If you listen to this, you'll also be loved. Something like that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I feel so exploitative, but we'd love to hear from you. Send us a note. Tell us who you'd like to see on this podcast, what type of topics you'd like to see covered and provide any general feedback. It's always really helpful. And without further ado, here's David Halpern.
1: David Halpern, welcome to Displaced. Hi, nice to be here. So we're going to kick off just talking about behavioral science in a bit of context because you're the chief executive of the Behavioral Insights team. And when you think about uh, behavioral science now, it's become incredibly fashionable. You had the World Development Report in 2015, Mind Society and Behavior. Nudge units have been set up all around the world in here in the US and in many other places. Richard Taylor won the, uh, the Nobel Prize but the field and the discipline itself has many different facets to it and has a longer history can you just place the whole behavioral insights revolution in a bit of context
2: sure so in some sense you know governments have long been doing this trying to think about as the everyone else we're all in the persuasion game as human beings I mean, you can choose examples that go way back. I sometimes use the example of white lines on the road, a great example of an everyday nudge. So encourage you to stay on one side or the other and literally hand-painted signs, which were pretty much exactly 100 years ago, the first them appearing in the world. But doing it overtly is a relatively modern thing. In Britain, we certainly looked at it periodically, for example, when I worked with Tony Blair, but it particularly came to the fore uh, in the wake of 2008, the publication of Nudge, the book. We had done a strategy unit report five years earlier in Britain but it didn't really well it didn't become mainstream put it that way but in 2009 then you have Cass Sunstein going into the White House and then in here in Britain me going into number 10 or back to number 10 in, in 2010 so things really kick off I would say from that period but the basic idea in some sense you know you see it elsewhere there are lots of examples in retrospect you can call they're using psychology to make things you know work easier. Postcodes designed in Britain, which are a combination of letters and numbers, makes them more memorable. I take it some, you know, psychologists thought about that a long time ago and thought, wouldn't this be better? And tested it. You might consider that to be a rudimentary example of a nudge type technique.
0: So this um, gets to, I think, a point that's challenging right now and kind of understanding behavioral insights as it's become more popular, which is on one hand, there's a sense that people are always making choices. People are always making choices that shaped the decisions and paths and actions and behaviors that others were going to take. And behavioral sciences, in one sense, I think just took a step back and said, we're doing this. How can we take advantage of what we know of human beings and, and do this with a little bit more consciousness? But there's a, a sense that I have a hard time understanding, which is what's actually a behavioral intervention versus what's every day, just decision making.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, some of the errors, particularly for many people that are public that they're familiar with it is in marketing uh, going back to Ravi's question you know, in the 1930s forward certainly you'd see companies trying to work out what's a better way of persuading you to use toothpaste when people weren't used to using it or buy a new product etc um, governments government schools will occasionally do it in their own way they would do it for propaganda reasons getting people to eat different foodstuffs during wartime you know or recycle metal actually it's, it doesn't look a million miles away from some of the stuff being talked about at least within this particular narrow domain of of what you might call marketing or information. Um, where it really changes a, a, a gear, I think, is, um, well, in two fronts, you might say. One is what's is often labeled a kind of nudge approach, or as it was rather ine- inelegantly called originally by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, libertarian paternalism, which is certain kinds of structured choice, choice architecture, where you you try and essentially make it easy to make the best choice for the individual. The classic example being a canteen. Do you put the healthy food before the chips? Right. So you've got to do it one way or the other. That's what's sometimes called rather grandly choice architecture. So you try and do it in a conscious way, in a way which supports what you consider to be good behavior. Who considers an interesting question? That's often framed around being choice enhancing as a key part of it, almost the politics. So you're not taking away a choice, but you're making it easier, the glide path easier for a better choice for the individual, be it around saving behavior or whatever it would be. There is a broader application which is just to take psychology and decision making and build it into lots of things you do so even if you're using a conventional instrument like a you know an incentive to encourage someone a financial incentive to do something you might still say what's the best way of designing it what happens if it's done up front or later or tailored in certain kinds of ways and you can enhance its um you know performance quite dramatically and essentially about psychology so uh, essentially what you're trying to do you're laying bare this idea that for many people, normally at the core of it, um, you're using mental shortcuts to make decisions all the time, day in, day out, what to eat, where to go. Also, big decisions you might make in your life actually turn out to be often using these mental shortcuts. And so an understanding of that can lead to a more effective kind of pressure point or lever or change in relation to you know whatever problem you take a pick, You know, reducing obesity, getting people to pay their taxes on time or reducing hostility between groups, whatever it might be.
1: Tell us a little bit more about the actual formation of the Behavioural Insights team that you run. I can remember when sure. it first came about. And one of the reasons why I think it was set up under the Conservative Party was that although many of the ideas had been circulating for many years, in fact, some of them had been implemented, such as the idea of changing the default setting on pensions so that you have to opt out rather than opt in. The reason I think it took hold in uh, in the time it did was because the Conservative Party were attracted to it because it wasn't as regulatory, it wasn't as interventionist. It perhaps suggested that you can do things without big government. Was that critical to the actual formation of BIT? And how has BIT now evolved uh, over the years? Because you've now no longer a government unit, you've spun out altogether.
2: Yeah, that's right. So the Behaviour Insight team is now co-owned, in unusual form, as a social company co-owned by British government. Um, so going back to your kind of core question, yes, in 2010, it's hard to understand, I think, why it took off without seeing the context. So. You had a centre-right government coming in. We also had a government with a very large budget deficit, so it was kind of broke, basically, and it was trying to say, actually, we're not going to regulate as well. So you've taken away the two principal levers that are familiar to most policymakers around a place like Whitehall, and you're trying to, at the same time, introduce an alternative. Uh, and that was very much the politics of it. It did fit the politics Um you know, the reason why I think it didn't take off, for example, in the Blair era is because you already had the politics, if you like, didn't work. You already had a government which was seen as expanding the role of government, regulating more and more. And now you want to do this as well. And that was easily positioned as being an any state. However, we're only in the context of you've got a generally deregulatory government and you're looking at it as an alternative to regulation and often the state is getting smaller. It doesn't feel like nanny state anymore. It feels like something different. And you can even tell some of the same story, I think, in the US. So Cass's role in the White House is very much positioned in relation to boiler and regulation and better regulation. Um, but so the interesting part here,
0: and this is why I appreciate being on the other side of the pond, is that I think you have a different lineage story in the US, right? So Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler, who are building mm-hmm. the philosophical foundations for this movement, then come into government under the Obama administration. And so nudging libertarian paternalism actually becomes a, uh, a project of the left, whereas in Britain, it sounds like it's a project of the right. And in the US, the way this evolves is that libertarians and conservatives are hugely against it, right? They're like, this is just another way of putting makeup on a pig that is you know, the nanny state coming in. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about that more specifically. But it's it's very much kind of a liberal enterprise, much more so than a conservative enterprise. And one of the arguments that you see, I, I think Tyler Cowen of Marginal Revolution has made this, is that actually conservatives in America have gotten it wrong, that there's a fundamental way in which you can use nudges to actually kind of enhance the, the conservative argument more. Um, and yeah. it's, it's, a, it's interesting to kind of think about these two things.
1: So David, take us through the basic argument around behavioral science, and in particular, perhaps highlight the biases
2: that distort our decision making. So look, there's a the wonder of human beings, this is the, the core argument really, is that we're humans, we're not econs, the way Richard Taylor would often put it, um, and others make similar arguments. So we're not rational utility maximizers who are able to absorb this massive amount of information and make a perfect decision. We use mental shortcuts, So, and a lot of them make a lot of sense, by the way. So. You know, we discount the future, but maybe that's a pretty sensible thing for us to do, particularly when we're running around in Savannah, and we don't know when we'll get our next meal. There are just loads of them in our thinking, um, and psychologists have docu- documented them. So we, we estimate probabilities, not because of a precise measure, but how readily we can bring to mind an example of something. So we end up thinking, god, aeroplanes, may seem like a really bad idea because you can easily think of an example of where they crashed, whereas getting in a car, that seems fine, even though the objective risk might be higher. So you can identify examples where these mental shortcuts take us astray and indeed in the commercial world people will often use those kind of against us actually so in gambling you'll try and give it a full sense of the probability that you'll win you'll go into a you know a vegas casino and you'll always hear a machine winning somewhere and it makes you feel you know great or you'll maximize the number of near misses does that increase human well-being probably not but it does also affect big decisions we make in life, such as, you know, a lot of people mean to save, but they don't get around to saving because of the frictional effort of filling in a form. So it's most policy, when it comes down to it, involves human behavior. You know, we want people to get back to work fast. We want to pay their taxes. We want, you know, kids not to be beaten by their teachers in <laughs> parts of the world, or teachers to turn up to school, you know, let alone kids to turn up to school. And it's hard to do this all through conventional regulation, but it's involving human beings. We need to understand how human beings are making judgments and decisions. And understanding that, just like if you were trying to design a, a better car, a sleeker car, understanding aerodynamics means that you can design a better car. In a similar way, understanding behavioral science means that you can design a better policy, which is more likely to be effective and easier and so on. And if one's looking
1: for a mental shortcut to actually understand behavioral science, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah would you say there's a you know hundreds of different biases that need labeling, or are there maybe a handful that are perhaps the most important that people can take away and 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 think about when they're doing their work
2: so there are hundreds of biases in fact, one of the criticisms sometimes made is that it's a bit like the sorcerer's apprentice you know every time you look at it there's suddenly it's split into another bias and another bias. but there are some very common ones which you see recurrently, and also in practical terms, you can boil it down to a simple number of lists. We sometimes use this mnemonic. East. If you want to think about human behavior, think about making it something easy, attractive, social, and timely. And you can more or less encapsulate, I mean, they're not everything, but frictional factors. Frictional factors make a huge amount of difference. Suicide rate in Britain drops by roughly 25% when North Sea oil comes on stream and putting your head in the oven no longer kills you. So that's the most important decision you might make. And you're adding the extra friction means you're much less likely to kill yourself. That is true in general, putting up barriers on you know, bridges, et cetera, making it more difficult to take out lots of pills means you're less likely to kill yourself. So frictional factors matter greatly. If you like, we're lazy. We'll be aware of putting it in everyday speak. Attractive, what makes it salient? Hearing our own name, relative contrast, of it. lots of examples in that space. Personalizing makes something much more likely to break through. Social, we're incredibly influenced by what other people are doing, what psychologists call the declarative social norm. Not what the formal rule is, but what's everyone else doing? So if you don't think other people are paying their taxes, why the hell would you bother? And then timely, they're key moments, particularly when your behavior is disrupted for some other reason. It breaks you out of the normal habit, if you like, of life. Those are moments within which you're most amenable to change your behavior. So inside those kind of principles, of course, yes, there are countless incredibly interesting uh, biases our overconfidence our belief that other people tend to think the same that we do when we see other people's behavior we attribute it to a personal factor when we see it ourselves we are aware that we blame it on the situation and in general our reasoning is what psychologists call motivated so we the voice in our head i think height puts it i think rather beautifully is not a a, a rational super scientist a natural scientist it's a press officer who is telling us why the thing we already did and we already believe was right <laughs> right that's, That is kind of how we go through the world. It's not just politicians, it's all of us. One of the things I think about from time to time is um, how much I
0: think the counter is is a bit of a straw man, right? So there's a a sense to behavioral sciences uh, sciences and some of the things that you're talking about that I think generally seem pretty obvious and would seem obvious to somebody who maybe didn't know what the counter example was. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a reflection of the way that policy architectures and governance and policy in particular has evolved and the role of kind of uh, rationalist economics in kind of driving you know, policy in OECD countries, particularly in like the post nineteen fifties world, I think it's I think it's revealing of uh, just the over influence of economics in policymaking in a
1: specific era. Like that's yeah. I mean, I, this I, is this is. I can so, remember I, can, so, I can remember so, I sitting down with them. Um, I mean, Robert Cialdini was on a panel, and I was with who's him. that? It's is Robert, Robert Cialdini
2: is. He's one of the fathers of this whole area. Wrote a book essentially about persuasion and popularized more than thirty years ago. But yes. And I was really irritated at the time because I was in
1: a ministry that was all about regulating energy. And here mm-hmm. were these nudge people coming along and saying, well, you can just slightly nudge people to drastically cut carbon emissions by 80%. There was all this talk, though, of, of the fact that we're not economically irrational. And I remember thinking only an economist or a policy wonk who's been trained in economics would think that you are economically irrational. And I think that's the point you're getting at. It?
0: But so, yeah, I think, this is, I think this is in part a reflection of... The evolution of of policy making and policy architecture in like the post-1950s OECD countries. So I think you largely have an influx of economists who start to really shape policy and a lot of the assumptions that they make, a lot of the models they espouse are grounded in a sense of individual rationality that once you then look at the data and and the points you're fundamentally making don't quite pan out. And so I think part of the popularity of nudge is a response to kind of a pendulum swinging the other way in what policy formation was for quite a while.
2: Yeah, so I think that's right, right? So in fact, I think one of the ironies of behavioral economics has made least impact on economics. And I think that's because it's the bastion of people who still think, oh, yeah, but All else done, you know, it does work. And of course, a lot of economists will recognise, of course, there are these behaviourally based at some, you know, errors or changes at some margins. But on average, it'll still work out fine. And of course, it's wrong on both counts. So the micro effects are very, very strong in many situations, Um, and the market doesn't often fails to find an equilibrium, which is on average the rational position. So I think one of the compelling arguments
0: against behavioral sciences, which I'm going to make uh, and I want to hear what you think about, is that at the end of the day, they're fundamentally pretty marginal, right? So when we're thinking about behavioralist interventions, we're thinking about change whether somebody is going to opt into a pension plan or not. We're not thinking about do we create a welfare system that supports pension plans or create a regulatory environment that creates pension plans. We're thinking about kind of just very uh, small behaviors, rather than the broader structures and the broader policy choices that they're considered. And so, what it fundamentally does is actually narrow the aperture for the ways we're thinking about improving outcomes.
1: I, I think that's a good point, but I think it's the worst example of that because actually, <laughs> the a small change in um, what is the default option for pensions yeah. can produce massive enrollment in pensions, which is a life-changing thing. I think the bigger concern is that often you are talking about 10% changes in in outcomes, which is great and is very, very low cost and therefore super cost effective. But when we are talking about people whose lives are incredibly disadvantaged, where literacy rates are incredibly low, is behavioral science enough to be life-changing?
2: Yeah, so that's probably a tougher question than the first one exactly on the first part yes there are quite a few examples of which pensions is perhaps the most famous and in general the use of defaults not only around pensions are incredibly powerful and be consequential and they change a trajectory so on both sides of the atlantic we see when you move from um, an opt-in system to an opt-out on pensions you get about 91 percent of people stick with the default in britain alone we have 10 million extra people saving particularly younger people and those who are actually on lower incomes who haven't benefited as much previously. That's a monumental difference, and it's basically anyone who does finance now, behavioural finance, is pretty dominant. And in fact, there are lots of other things which have consequences to follow from not just pensions that could you do, sidecar savings, which, by the way, are potentially on the so second what are sidecar, sidecar savings? savings. So one of the really interesting phenomenon is around, it's particularly documented by uh, in the book Scarcity, but around people with very little in the world, it looks like they often make, Odd so classic examples of farmers before harvest or low-income individuals you know, in the US or whatever show what's often known as tunneling effects, so partly because they're so focused on some other things, they then seem to make what's an irrational decision. And then it's um, so the question of what do you do about it, and one of the arguments is people who have even small amounts of savings make completely different decisions, and it can be quite life-changing, potentially. So you you have to unpack the problem. And then, well, if that's true, then the implications are actually across the world, having or getting to the position where people have even small amounts of savings is enormously valuable. And you can either do that, you might think, well, we'll do it through some conventional big fiscal injection of some kind, or you can say, well, actually, can we, in the same way that we change the defaults around pensions, Get into place. Far more people have out of debt, basically, and into savings, and it would be much more consequential for its secondary reasons. Of course, there are also examples where you might think, "Well, that's a relatively modest effect." But what you're really looking at in many areas, certainly for our work these days, is something called, you know, first generation nudges. Oh, you make a specific change and you get a few percent. Oh, yeah, it was worth doing. It, it was really cheap. Like you know, telling people they use more energy than their neighbours and you get a couple of percent left, and that's great, but it's really cheap. You know, so on. But it doesn't change the world by itself. But if those percentages add up or they change the equilibrium in the system or the market, then no, it's no longer just a, a small thing that it, it changes the whole world. So again, on back on pensions, you know, we did work showing that if your pension um, matures, you've got a choice and then a lot of people stick with their existing provider and they don't shop around. And then it means they're getting very bad deals. We showed we could get a tenfold increase the number of people who basically look around by just giving them one side summary of their pension. Now you might say, well, tenfold. I think it's like from one to eleven percent type thing. But that's enough to change the market equilibrium. So now the major marketplace think, oh God, actually you might not stick with us. So we hmm. better, we better actually offer you a better deal from the outset. And that's true in many areas. So around obesity, for example, which is not just uh, you know. An OECD problem anymore. You know, every ten percent increase in uh, GDP in developing nations is associated with roughly a six-seven percent increase in yes, uh, better child nutrition, and but also almost exactly the same percentage increase in parental obesity. Right, it's a big deal. Well, what are you going to do about that? It, it's both at once. You're looking for micro interventions, but actually you're looking for interventions that change the equilibrium around product formulation and so on. So you do it upstream, and that's what we see, for example, in relation to the sugar tax design in the UK. We see 11% reduction in sugar even before the tax comes in. And by way, an increase in sales, that's a hell of a lot of sugar we're taking out of the system. And for your average 15-year-old, it's a big deal. It's actually based on sort of micro evidence about human behavior. But ultimately, we're making a change which is altering fundamentally the dynamics around the food market. So we start to get into some practical examples. I'd love to go
1: deeper into a few different sectors. Let's take health, given that you were talking about that, um, and let's apply it to the issues faced by people who are displaced. One of the biggest issues we are trying to grapple with is how to address severe acute malnutrition. And there are tens of millions of children who face this. And the evidence is pretty good on the treatment side. We do know how to diagnose and treat malnutrition, but we're very poor at prevention, even though the basic components of good prevention are known. If you have a more diverse diet, uh, if you wash hands, if you maintain your course of vaccines, all of these things can help prevent malnutrition what do we what are we learning perhaps not just from fragile states but elsewhere about how you change health behaviors that potentially we could apply in the context we work in
2: sure so actually a good example on, on health behavior in fact dan Arielli uses a personal example himself is that it literally could be life and death so from an economic point of view you just think well there's there's no more incentive you can possibly apply if you don't do the following thing you will die or your kids will die rational person you know it's a no brain like but of course, it turns out that's not what people are like. So, you know, in parts of Latin America where you've got low nutrition, but you're going to sprinkle with sprinkles, you know, put on vitamin supplements on the food, but it actually doesn't taste that great and kids don't eat it. We think well, actually it's really consequential, the taste or the experience or that people might, you can use other kinds of motivations basically to get people to do things. Dan Ariely gives a personal example from, as you may know, he was very, very scarred and an injury in the army. And it became clear to him a lot of people, very, very painful treatment you would have from this. A lot of people wouldn't pursue the treatment. So he did what is called a classic reward substitution. So he would say to himself, on the days after I've had my treatment, I'll I'm gonna I'm gonna set aside in advance a video that I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna really look forward to. So you then kind of create this condition link to, oh, I'm gonna do my drinks, I'm gonna feel awful, but I'm gonna enjoy watching the movie. Well, how crazy is that? If he doesn't have the treatment, he's gonna die. But actually, the reason that he gets himself to do it is because he's going to look forward to a movie, and he conditions it. Well, that might seem kind of trivial, but actually, that is important. How do you get people to uh, take up their immunisation or add, you know, a more balanced diet or whatever it would be? Given we're talking about human beings, you might well find actually small kinds of incentives or encouragements or social pressures will will get you there in a way that a purely rational argument won't do so. Or how do you make it easy? I mean, you may know, I'm sure, around. For treatment of water, that people often don't add the treatment, and then the question is, how do you inform people? or how do you you look at literally the mechanics and the process to figure out, or well, can you put the dispenser in a certain way or a certain position, which makes it easier, more likely for someone to do it? And there are lots of examples, even on savings behaviour. We keep talking about pensions, right? Oh, you know, <laughs> I always stuff. come back to pensions. Yeah, but Dilip, Dilip Soma has done wonderful work, for example, in India, showing you're trying to encourage workers to save a little bit for the education of their kids. If you give them the the money in one envelope, it always goes, basically. But if you pay the wage in two envelopes, it is very likely that they will save because you're always going to open one envelope. But the second one, you might just be able to keep shut. Mm -hmm. Um, If you give them an envelope where it's got a picture of their kids, they're even more likely to save. If it's an envelope where the the kids are on it and they have to tear open through the picture of the kids, then you're like double or more for savings rate. So, you know, this stuff applies across the world, actually. It's not just some... OECD, nicety.
0: So I actually think health is uh, one of the areas where some of the other types of inventions are actually much more impactful. And so whether it's malnutrition or health more broadly, right, like advances in surgery, advances in medical technology, I think have had much broader effects than some of the behavioral sciences around it. And so I think it's important to kind of keep the cost efficiency in mind um, of a lot of these interventions, because some of the R&D or some of the pieces that go into actually pushing forward fields in more radical ways can be heavier and much more uncertain. It's a reason to actually think about what's possible at what scale and where, uh, because particularly when you're in resource-poor environments, like many of the clients we serve, a lot of those options are not necessarily on the table. But I want to I want to pivot us to, unless you want to come in there. Yeah, I want to start you just review really, you. Look, I, to, I, I know. I don't want to <laughs> can I just can't I just provoke <laughs> you and then pivot sure. us away.
2: <laughs> look, um obviously there are lots of other policy levers and you should work out what's your most effective policy lever, and sometimes they will be conventional or big health investments, or you know, let's pay for the education of our kids. And but uh I do think, particularly on health, there's a it is especially wrong. So you remember we've got the reverse of Moore's laws operating on health qualities often so we're now at roughly it's a nine year cycle every nine years it's doubling the cost so we're now at roughly five billion dollars to get one blockbuster drug that's a lot of money five billion dollars as opposed to for example let's look at the effectiveness of smoking cessation programs or as you may know we've pushed and for the availability of e-cigarettes because we think we've got an addictive behavior you really want to drive substitution and the evidence is strongly supporting that. So some of these things are pretty cheap. And in general, I think public health interventions look like pretty good value. And the frustrating thing is that we don't, in fact, apply the same cost-benefit analysis and good quality randomized controlled trials to be able to answer that question. So uh, I'm not sure I accept f- your premise or your argument around health per se, <laughs> that actually there aren't some enormous behavioral interventions. And practically, in a lot of the developing world, what's happening is that... Um, you know you can see US healthcare providers saying actually what you really need is a US style healthcare system no. which is definitely not the most definitely. effective way forward as opposed to health prevention programs which will look very strongly behavioral you know and in fact even remember Ebola a lot of the arguments were about what worked in the end were fundamentally were around behavioral aspects getting into the culture understanding that people are touching bodies you know that's where the key action was So let's go through some other sectors. Let's take you to education.
1: So one of the problems we face there is that teachers sometimes don't turn up. When they are in class, you've got problems with corporal punishment. And then they're not necessarily teaching in the way that we know is going to promote achievement. So they don't necessarily group people by ability or engage students in a more active process. It tends to be quite didactic, chalk and talk. So changing teacher behavior is a critical thing. Typically, teacher training programs quite costly, don't necessarily work. What are you learning about changing the behaviour of teachers,
2: either in stable places or particularly in, in in low-income, fragile contexts? So it's an incredibly interesting area, and we're working in both contexts, as, as you know. Often, how do you get your teachers or even head teachers to turn up? So it turns up just as you, know, you were in an environment department, it was possible to say to people... By giving them comparisons, social comparisons, you get them to use less energy, actually, you can do the same with teachers and head teachers, certainly head teachers, should, which is to give them some feedback about what's the level at which other teachers generally uh, are turning up, and then you can get turnout rates up you know so social comparisons work pretty repeatedly in many many domains, similarly in relation to look you're in a refugee camp and you've got unruly class, and there's a lot of kids and the temptation to use corporal punishment, even if the rules are supposed to be you're not going to do that. Well, you can then use, as we have been, uh, behavioral science to try and figure out what's your best persuasive strategy because you aren't going to be in the classroom with the teacher. Um, And of course you can test the number of variations and you can try and figure out, as we've been doing, well, which strategy is more effective? Which message is more effective in relation to encouraging the teacher to be less likely to actually hit the kids? Or even another example in refugee camps, again, I think you'll know, but um, it was thought often the parents are as much the teacher and there's some pretty good material on mobile phones and it was an interesting question of how do you get the parents to engage in it. The presumption was always, well, actually you should frame it around, you know, it'll be fun, et cetera. We thought actually there might be better ways, but we found by framing it in relation to science and brain science and the gain actually made the parents much more likely to engage in the content than just positioning it as fun. So it can be quite micro details, but it also could be some pretty fundamental stuff. Um, In general, as it happens, education, I think, is a great example which illustrates a more fundamental principle which behavioural science has generally pushed into the field, not only, but is that um, why on earth wouldn't we empirically try and answer these questions? You know, so medicine has made massive advances, essentially, because of the use of empirical methods to work out which is more or less effective, and yet other fields like education haven't done that. Well, why not? The UK has just passed the the mark of more than a million kids in the last six years taken part in randomized controlled trials in British schools to figure out what's more or less effective. Oh my God, you're experimenting on our children. Yeah, actually, yes, there are lots of experiments now being done on kids to figure out what's more or less effective. The world didn't end. But think about what the alternative is. The alternative was, what, you're just gonna do all this stuff in schools and education to kids, and you didn't find out whether it was effective before? I mean, my view is pretty clear as to which is the morally superior line today. I don't know what you think? So this is actually a debate that happens in the humanitarian
0: um, realm a lot, which is what you don't want to be doing in crises is actually experimenting at all. It's uh, incredibly unethical. It's hard to get consent. Like, why would you test something that you didn't know what works? And I think the the bias that it reveals is exactly what you're pointing to, which is the thing that we tend to be doing hasn't been tested anyways. So there's you know roughly a hundred randomized controlled trials of interventions in fragile and conflict affected states. On what works. And I think that's like absolutely shameful. We should be doing things that are much more evidence based. It's not to say that things don't necessarily work and that we're not necessarily doing the right things, but we're often supposing that in a way that I actually think uh, is an expectation that we wouldn't ourselves abide by, right? There's none of nobody that I would ever talk to that would ever take a drug, a medicine, enter into a social program that
2: they didn't know worked. but we oftentimes expect that of others. Look, actually, it self reveals a bias, which is that um, policymakers themselves are human beings, as are professionals, and they are way overconfident. So we take it, we just presume if we're a teacher, what we're doing, or a clinician, or indeed an aid worker, what we're doing is effective. And actually, we're not very good at seeing it might not be. So we're overconfident in our, you know, our belief on effects. It's been handled in many years in medicine, is that it's not that you give no treatment, To the patient right it's like we're going to try and help you as best we can and we're going to give you this drug but we're not sure as to where the second drug works so half the patients will also get the second drug so you're generally looking at so-called marginal effects but margins Mm -hmm. actually amount to a lot over time and the same would be true in relation to you know a disaster scenario you're not going to go okay we're not going to help these people right but the question is what is the best way to help them Mm -hmm. or what is the best way to teach these kids who are kind of traumatized is it A or is it B? We're going to help all of them, but let's test some variations to see which of them is more effective at a margin. And I, yeah, my own view is it's kind of shameful that we haven't been doing that. And I I think our kids will look back and just say, what the hell were you guys doing? You know, you based your policy on these naive models, which everyone knew were wrong, number one. And then number two, you leapt into doing all these things without testing whether they were effective. What weird world was that?
0: So I want to pivot us since we're on the kind of humanitarian space to an uh, uh, area where I know you've been working that is particularly timely and relevant, which is in thinking about uh, how to reduce violence and thinking about how to avoid um, mass atrocities and some of the work that you're doing on integration. So
2: yeah, tell us more about that. So that's really interesting. So one of the arguments that people say about pay for science or large is, oh yeah, fine, maybe get people to pay their tax a little bit more and whatever. And But anyway, the argument is, well, but why not wicked issues too? So uh, and one of them is definitely, look, let's face it, what happens in some of the greatest challenges in the world is that we fall out with each other in pretty cat- catastrophic ways um, within societies, between them, and so on. So, as you know, if we on average, two wars a year, what we're at, roughly 100 billion average cost. Most of them have a, a their root conflict between groups or whatever. Sometimes, of course, stimulated by other kinds of shortages. But, yeah, so um, so we thought for a while, this is an area we should be able to do more about. I mean, so, for example, we were doing some work in Colombia in relation to the number of countries on anti-corruption type measures, and like why aren't kids getting there, you know, not getting fed? And the president basically says, look, it's all very interesting, but isn't the biggest issue in town the peace process, which is kind of fair cop, really? And you think, well, what, how can a little bit of nudging or behavioural science possibly be relevant? I think it's incredibly relevant if you think about a problem like that. So, look, you've had a conflict running 52 years, you have people who've known nothing else in many cases. Um, Ravi's going to come out of the jungle and we say, hey, give us your rifle, we'll give you $1,200. A really key detail is not just some kind of transaction, is do you feel respected or do you feel humiliated in that transaction, right? That isn't like some minor detail. It's absolutely fundamental to your emotional reaction and will be totally fundamental as to whether in five years time you've joined you know, a drug cartel or you've rejoined a, a new, you know, essentially a conflict. We think in these details, why can't you turn it into a kind of more of a science, work out what it is? The same is true domestically in relation to issues of integration and group conflict or even historic issues. So we're doing work um, thinking about in, in the UK. There's a new Holocaust memorial. You might say we have been a bit slow to get it done, but, you know, it's being put together at the moment. And if you think about it and you listen to people's amb- ambitions and aspirations about that, it's not just an inverted commas, a historic memorial. It's because they're saying never again. Well, what does that mean? That's quite an ambitious undertaking. What would it mean? To build a set of experiences, not just in one place, but across schools, which meant people felt more empathy towards each other across groups and segments. So it was genuinely less likely you'd have genocide again, you know, anywhere in the world. That looks a lot like a behavioral challenge, right? A difficult one. But nonetheless, you can decompose it into its elements. So absolutely, why not? Why shouldn't applied social scientists be thinking about these kind of issues and policymakers in a... A scientific way as best we can to try and answer those challenges i mean really important so what are we learning on colombia we don't have results yet it's quite a difficult thing to design a randomized control trial for and they've also just had a big presidential election so we had to wait on that um we do have quite a lot of ideas about the concrete specifics about how you do it around elements of how you handle you know reintegration processes for example similarly in relation to a really interesting question about if you are designing for example a holocaust memorial what would it look like and what would it feel like and what can you build into the experience to help you understand you know the group identification how rapidly you can flip so it's a really interesting question as to whether we're looking at how you can test it like literally the design of the exhibits and the experience in the ways that would increase your level of empathy or on a larger scale um we've been very involved in of course in britain we have the national citizen service which is designed to create bridging social capital Young people deliberately from different walks of life, spending time together, away from home, really important. Um, and it, it makes them feel more connected. But also, how can you increase social trust, particularly amongst the most disadvantaged? We've shown that if you put in just a 10-minute icebreaker where you talk about in what way are we similar, it increases social trust, and particularly amongst the kids from most disadvantaged backgrounds. You know, So there are lots of ways you can refine and improve these programs. So what
1: would you want to test if you were trying to increase... Uh, social cohesion amongst refugees and host communities, whether that's in, place like, Jordan or Lebanon, or even, frankly, in the
2: United States. God, it's so interesting. Mm, goodness. Because um, I'm a hyper so I want to say, because <laughs> do we really know the answer yet? Yeah, but um, we might see some of the parameters of it. So, look, you want people to come together onto circumstances under some kind of degree of equality and respect, you know, but not surprising some of that. That's why... Where you see interventions in other areas, um, it often you're taking them out of the context where they blend and connect, and that's the circumstance under which you learn the habits of of trust right and connection and so it might have some of those uh, elements um, what would that look and feel like i don't know what's your ideas actually
0: so I think some of the things that you're starting to see out of the empirical literature that i'm familiar with are um, are possibly not that surprising. I think one is that the more contact and the more kind of positive contact you have yeah. between groups, the actual implication of that, because I think it's classic social contact theory and new empirical papers come about that all the time, yeah. is then actually how you structure the policy architecture to actually make that happen. Because I think that's then the hard part, right? It's easy to say like, well, we should get you know refugees and host community individuals to come together and have dinner together. And like it's actually really hard and not that easy to action out. There's another question, which is, all right, so like, do we structure school districts to bring in number, you know, to have, you know, either quotas or to, you know, make sure that we're assigning refugees to communities where there aren't a lot to see that such that they can then facilitate those situations. I think that's actually where you start to get at the questions of more integration.
1: Similarly, when I I think back to this question in a totally different context, we got quite interested in the role of neighbourhood institutions in creating social capital. So your childcare, primary schools, local health clinics, safer policing teams. And I do think that those institutions are the best way of trying to create some social capital. I think it's particularly hard in certain contexts because people aren't using common institutions. They're actually divided Uh, So particularly in certain contexts, refugees are actually excluded from those places, so can't actually mix.
0: But here's one of the, I think, broader issues that's particularly hard on the refugee side. Um, It's when you kind of expand out and ask, why is there a lot of anti-refugee sentiment right now? And there's obviously a lot of answers, and it's a complex question that I don't want to oversimplify. And we also don't know a lot about it, because I'm also an empiricist. But I think one of the things that you see, at least in the United States, is that those who were in the majority, kind of a white majority, are increasingly becoming a demographic minority. And so I think there's and there's this sense that they're losing power and that they're losing the way that things used to be. And so, I often get concerned that we're kind of pinning hopes on these small micro level interactions when the macro level story may be something broader, which is about actually how power is shifting. I think you see the same thing here in the European Union. And so, a question that I grapple with, and I, and I really don't have an answer to this, is: Should we be spending our time thinking about how to kind of work on kind of like individual level integration, or are we actually like missing the bigger picture for the way that politics are shifting in kind of decades oriented experiences? That is what we need to be looking at.
2: Hey, uh, <laughs> that's a small question. <laughs> Look, I think our technique or approach is being we're not trying to answer all the questions. How would we answer the question? But we tend to try and look both at the very micro and at the macro so you can say that about markets but you can also say about social dynamics so you at once need to understand what is the literally individual level experience which tends to create for example trust and bridging or indeed to undermine it and you can get some pretty useful client you know indications like that so certain kinds of means tested benefits for example look pretty corrosive where you create signals of distrust whereas other kinds of things you were alluding to or certain kinds of activities which highlight other aspects of your identity which is in common, you know, around football or music. So you try and get some of those clues and then of course you've got to scale back up. Well, how many of them could literally be scaled or what are the knock-on consequences around it? As you may know, I've actually worked a lot in fact also with Bob Putnam around issues of social capital for many years. And it's it's one of those things where we know it's so important. Well I think we know it's pretty important, like social trust, massive national differences, et cetera. And it's ridiculously understudied. So We have so few examples of really good intervention studies that show, certainly at scale, what you can do to increase bridging social capital and social trust. Um, But there's no reason why in principle we can't pull it apart empirically. So I mentioned the example of National Citizen Service. It is a programme built around creating short form experiences for young people from different backgrounds to come together and have experiences. And it creates bridging social capital. And we've also looked at ways of, of enhancing it. And, you know, for example, One of our concerns was it might seem micro for a minute, but um, about 15 percent of kids wouldn't show up. Right. Which is too bad because we know it's very beneficial for them in lots of ways, but individually and collectively. Well, then how do you reduce it? We found that if you introduce the young people to another young person who's going to be on it a month before, just kind of online, it halves the dropout rate. Interestingly, if you introduce them to someone from a different background or ethnicity, the dropout rate is even lower, which is a really neat result will that help? Will that be enough to move the dial? You know, I don't know. It it certainly helps, but we need to be able to answer some of those questions.
0: What are the behavioral tricks that you actually have integrated into your personal life? And what are like tactical ways that individuals can do this?
2: Well, my children, the N is rather small. So that's a basic, there's a power calculation. An underpowered study. You're never running experiments on them. They may have run experiments on me, of course, possibly. But the, uh, um but do, yeah, do you think about in everyday life? I mean, some of the stuff about behavioral science is you often see these results and they are kind of, oh my god, that's really powerful and remarkable. So, um, not from our work, but going back to Carol Dweck's work around, for example, how you give feedback to um to kids in a classroom and she showed that very famous study now, that um, you know, when you take eleven year old kid and you when you're giving them the mark back, it's really consequential whether you say, Hey, here's your mark. Um, you're a really smart kid, you know. Um, or if you say, Here's your mark, that was a really good effort. And we now know that the right answer is emphasize the effort because you put in theory of mind, basically, that there's a link between when you, when you hit difficulty, what do you do? You try harder because it's telling you about, you know, as opposed to if you hit difficulty, you think, oh God, I'm, if it's a a test of, of your ability, then, oh God, a stupid test, I reject it. And so you get really quite dramatic differences in subsequent performance by just giving that small Tweak in how you give feedback. So, any parent, you know, reading that research and you're like, oh my God, what did I say to my kids? What's the right thing to say? You know, so it is directly consequential. That's right. You can use it at home, folks. um So, yeah, there's lots of those examples. I think, um, you know, eating behavior or exercise, you want to do something, you want to figure out how do you routinize it. You never get to the gym regularly, try and think about how you put exercise into your life. I cycle into work, you know. So, there's lots of work on this about how you can nudge yourself. I sometimes use the example of. Um, You know, how many people in a room, if they're still retro enough to wear a watch, have the watch fast? I reckon about a third of people in my experience. Um, Why do they do that? I think that's such a bad thing to do. Really? Wait, wait. So we'd see it. Well,
1: but but surely you you just discount the fact that you're five minutes ahead.
2: I know, but see, this is it. You see, you're still in traps, my friend, in the world of the econ. (laughs) Um, You've got to factor in um, when you're in a hurry, you don't. So that's why it works, I think, is that uh, if you're not in a hurry, like, oh wait a minute, it's three minutes, oh I've got a bit of time, but you know.
1: Why? But surely it takes a split second to calculate the five minutes off the, the time that you've added on. That's why you found the solution to make him more on time. That's why
2: five minutes is a mistake, because five minutes is an easy calculation to make. So you should set your watch an odd time fast. <laughs> like two minutes and three quarters. That's interesting. So you've got to make it mentally more difficult to make the adjustment. I wonder if that yeah, means like more you more put your cookies in a weird spot
0: if you don't want it, right? <laughs> like is there something to like actually just having everything be like a little bit weirder?
2: Well, you joke about that, but, you know We know frictional force are incredibly powerful, but there are literally examples yeah. of people who want to control their spending and they frozen their credit card. You mean they put their credit card in, the freezer, in a right? block of ice, yeah. yeah. Or whatever, you that know. Makes so hurt. these are quite powerful techniques which you can use in your everyday life to shape your own behavior. Just one final question about how you actually apply it in
1: work to to running an organization. I can remember when I first joined the civil service, someone you know, Moira Wallace, encouraged me to manipulate ministers, in particular by framing choices, using obvious (laughs) choice architecture design, such as, you know, your first option is surrender. Your last option is invade Poland. Your middle option is yeah. sensible compromise. And I'm sure ministers got fairly alert to this obvious attempt to manipulate them, but it, it did seem to be vaguely effective. If we walked out to the Behavioural Insights team now, would you be constantly using smart ways of uh, improving productivity and collaboration?
2: Yeah, yeah. No, on your example, sometimes they're called as bleeding stumps um, as the alternative. Um, you know, cut your limbs off or you could do this, minister. Um, uh, Tony Blair, as you say, um, Yes, Minister wasn't, you know, it was a documentary basically illustrating exactly your point. Obviously, we would never do any of those things, but yeah, do we use them in the organisation? Absolutely. I mean, one of the areas where which is, is widely discussed, and we're doing a lot of work uh, on, um, is around diversity and inclusion, where you want to bring in different kinds of groups in society, uh, or promotion for gender or ethnicity, etc. And uh, the fashion, of the fact, a huge amount of money is spent across the world on all kinds of unconscious bias training. Our view of which is generally A lot of it doesn't work. In fact, a lot of it is actually counterproductive. Shocker. Getting particularly, for example, white middle class or middle-aged men to go on diversity awareness, generally speaking, um, counterproductive. On the other hand, well, what does work? Uh, well, actually, there are lots of things that work. Particularly, they tend to work by changing a process. So we ourselves, we're doing a lot of recruitment. We designed a, an alternative platform. Um, actually, now it's available, it's called apply, but to essentially de-bias the recruitment process. So even people who are quite sophisticated, actually, you you can't escape your biases. So, for example, if you're going for a job, you really want to make sure that the prior candidate is terrible because it's all judging relativities. Uh, or even within an interview, you know, if you if you muff the first question, it's very hard to recover from it. So you can you can essentially redesign a process to take out that. So you ask lots of questions um, separately. Each question is then spliced off and goes to separate raters, and then they're recombined. And we tested this in a randomized controlled trial and showed that it was very, very much more effective in predicting who would be your best candidate in a very, very detailed subsequent assessment than, for example, a conventional CV sift. So Iris Bonet has made a similar point around this. You, you, you de-bias processes in organizations, and it can be extremely effective. Trying to de-bias de- individuals is pretty hard. I mean, we're going to still be human beings at the end of it. So I think that's pretty positive as a set of results. It, it tells you that... As you can have very dramatic effects by doing that, but at the same time, it shows you a sobering thought: is that huge numbers of organisations spend a lot of money on things which are ineffective or, in fact, often counterproductive because their underlying models are wrong.
0: David Halperin, thank you for so much for being with us.
1: I thought it was a really good effort, by the way. Really good effort on that <laughs> podcast. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> For listening, our team at the IRC is Alex Bandea, katherine Long, and Ben Moskowitz.
0: And we are eternally grateful to our partners at Vox Media Podcast Network. Jelani Carter is our associate producer, Golda Arthur is our senior producer, and Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio at Vox Media. And Jarrett Floyd is our engineer.
1: Do get in touch with us and give us any feedback and suggestions on who we should have on the show at displaced at and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We put up show notes at www.rescue.org forward slash displaced. Check them
1: out. See you next week and thanks for listening.